Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. the Moan Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me Martinez. Governor Newsom is proposing spending $12 billion to house California's homeless. Find out how the money will be spent and how much of it in L.A. County. Plus, the pandemic has really changed all of us, but a librarian turned contact tracer kept a daily audio journal of her transformation. Wait till you hear how it all went. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us. Coming up, a contact tracer shares her audio diary from the past year. And the surge is just kind of getting to everybody. Um, And I'm doing this right now because I can't sleep. Um, I've been up just nonstop thinking. Well, you can really hear the stress in her voice. That story is coming up just ahead. But first, Governor Gavin Newsom this morning announced an almost $12 billion investment in housing for the homeless over the next two years, with $9 billion going to Project Home Key. Now, the money would enable cities to purchase hotels, motels, and vacant buildings and convert them into interim or permanent housing. He said the program started last year with Federal CARES Act funds and resulted in almost 6,000 converted housing units. Now, expansion could mean more housing at far lesser cost. Here to talk about this and what the real effect might be is Gary Painter, professor and director of the Homelessness Policy Research Institute at USC. Professor Painter, welcome back to Take Two. It's a pleasure to be back, A. All right, so how does a Project Home Key work and how is it different from your traditional ways of building new housing? Well, put quite simply, Project Home Key allows jurisdictions to buy hotels or motels that hotel operators, you know, want to sell. Um, whereas the typical way that people um, get housing built for the homeless is, or provided for the homeless, is either to build new, or to provide some sort of a housing subsidy that they can take to a private landlord, and provided they're willing to take that person into their home, then that can provide the rent to keep someone stably housed. How does regulations figure in uh, on this? Well, there are slightly different occupancy standards for a hotel-motel industry than there is for permanent housing. Um, And so to that end, in order to um, get these units ready to be occupied permanently, there has to be some retrofitting happen. That includes perhaps the obvious, like adding kitchenettes and those kinds of things, but also to make sure that, you know, all the fire codes are up to standards. And Professor, so the the emphasis on Project Home Key is, is permanent supportive housing. Has that been the case in L.A. so far? Yeah, that is the emphasis. Um, There are situations where it might also be a good resource um, for interim housing. And and in some cases, I think you'll see jurisdictions using some of the hotels and motels acquired for interim housing until they can be kind of slotted for rehabilitation. So just like everything else, you can't immediately snap your fingers and and have units ready to go right, right away. And so as we are seeking every interim housing resource and every permanent housing resource possible, um, it helps to have both. Yeah, so on that, because Newsom said that uh, rehabbing old units is, is far cheaper than building housing from scratch. Uh, would you agree then that, that that could be a better approach even even here in Los Angeles? Well, absolutely. I mean, we, we've seen that sometimes it takes to, you know, uh, somewhere in the range of five hundred, six hundred, or $700,000 per unit to build permanent housing, um, either affordable housing or actually housing for the homeless. Um, those are at the high end, um, but what we've seen to date anyway is that the the first round of Project Home Key sites were able to be acquired for somewhere between two to $300,000 a unit. And so being able to save half, if you can, makes sense for, for everybody. Specific to L.A., then, how will expanding this program avoid the cost overruns that have really plagued Proposition HHH housing in the beginning of that program? 
Well, I think it's it's slightly unfair to talk about kind of cost overruns plaguing um, Proposition HHH, but that's perhaps a, a different conversation. I think you'll see those average costs coming down over time as mm-hmm. as streamlining processes really you know take hold. But I think what is kind of again is exciting here is that these units are already built, so you're not going to have to wait for every single approval to get put in place from the entitlements of the land to you know at the end the occupancy standards at the end of a process so that you can actually give someone a key. In this case, you have a building that met a certain sort of requirements for the hotel and motel industry. Now you simply have to rehab them appropriately, and then you're going to have far fewer. Um, you know, kind of permits that are needed. So in this context, there's just less that can go wrong. So you're saying that uh, for anyone that does perceive it as as plagued when it comes to the cost, that you need to wait until time enough time passes so that the averages kind of make that uh, not an issue. Yeah, I mean, there's two things specifically we can point to. One is the city council passed a permanent supportive housing ordinance right at the same time as the project, um, or sorry, Triple H funds became available to streamline these processes to reduce those what are called in the industry soft cost of, of basically forcing developers to sit on their money too long before you actually can build. Um, the reality was that that got tied up in lawsuits, and until state legislation kind of paved the way for it to go forward, those first projects were, you know, caught up in a, in a lot of the kind of standard slow processes that we have here in the city of L.A. Um, the other thing that's happening with HHH funds is that these later projects are also using innovative construction methods and other approaches that have the real potential to save money, whether you're repurposing shipping containers or you're building what is called modular um, in the sense of bringing the units that are built off-site to L.A. and put them in place. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I think, promise there. And so we should wait before we <laughs> conclude that, you know, it was too expensive. When you say that standard slow processes in L.A., I think that's what's got voters in L.A. frustrated, Professor. I, you know, they, they see people on the street and they, they see what, what is happening to the city and they think, man, are you telling me you got to wait even longer? You know, this, this, the kind of the irony of this all is that voters in L.A. over the last 40 years put in place processes to slow down buildings mm-hmm. so that we could enjoy California as it was in the 80s, you know, which had that size of a population. At the same time, we wanted economic growth to fuel prosperity. And, and unfortunately, at some point, those two don't go together. And the consequence of that is that in the last 15 years, the percentage of income that that renters are paying as rent has gone up astronomically. Now in the state, over a billion people pay half their income as rent. I'm I'm sorry, not a billion, um, but I'll I'll have to get that. It's it's 800 million. It's a huge number of people. And and so that's what's kind of causing the continued push of people into homelessness. And so what voters have to recognize is not just providing some resources now for people who are unhoused, but it's actually to change the system that made so many people precariously housed. Yeah, there's a longer story as to how we got here. Uh, We're talking to Gary Painter, USC professor and the director of the Homelessness Policy Research Institute uh, at USC. Uh, Governor Newsom said that uh, this $8.75 billion in funding would result in 46,000 new housing units. So what are the challenges of getting there, particularly with finding people that are willing to sell uh, their hotels? Yeah, so I guess you, you, you pointed to one thing that we just don't know, which is, are there going to be enough people willing to sell their hotels and motels? In the first round, there were certainly enough people, um, people who had been really hit hard by the pandemic, who probably had creditors breathing down their neck, and they realized that their best way forward was to is just to sell their, their motel. As we see the economy recover, there may be some that now look at it and go, you know what? Maybe I want to stay in the in the motel industry. I see a path forward there. And so we just simply don't know if there's going to be enough available sellers. We had a similar problem in, in some of our emergency programs. Um, many of your listeners might know of Project Room Key, which provided the opportunity for homeless people to be, to actually, in some sense, rent rooms, you know, paid for by the public sector in hotels and motels. And a lot of hotel and motel operators actually didn't participate in that program because they just were so unsure of its duration and, and other things. So I think that's something that we we certainly need to just be wary of. There may not be enough. And if there isn't, we should have a backup plan in place. Um, we should have a way of, of being able to take that money and to move it into rental subsidies so that 
while we have seen vacancies decline a little bit in the city of Los Angeles during the pandemic, we should probably try to take advantage of that now and lock in some of those vacant units because we know if we go back to 2019, they weren't there. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, there, there's probably some hotels or motels that have survived, maybe by the skin of their teeth, they've survived this pandemic. And now with things opening up, LA is a vacation destination, Professor. So maybe they'll, they won't want to go this route and stay open for the tourists. No, that's absolutely true. I think there's a there's a class of hotels and motels that were owned by kind of mom and pop operations. Many of those were older hotels and motels that actually are going to need a little bit more rehab. Um, and many of them were actually providing housing to people who were very precariously housed on kind of you know weekly contracts, twenty eight day contracts, etc. You know, in some ways, if those can be flipped into permanent housing solutions, that's a win-win for everybody. Um, I think the space that, you know, your question really brings to bear is if you had, you know, a Motel 6, you had a Days Inn, you had some of those kind of class of hotels, the efficiency hotels that, you know, major corporations own, you know, they may not have been assets that were performing during the pandemic, but if they see a path forward, they may hold on to them, recognizing how hard it is to acquire land um, for the future. They, They may actually you know, not so. You know, Professor, all of this uh, reminds me of the lawsuit against the city and county of L.A. overseen by uh, Judge David O'Carter. And there's a big debate related to that about whether we should concentrate on creating shelter beds versus permanent housing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, in many ways, that's the problem is that it's framed as a debate between finding interim housing or permanent housing and rather than a both and kind of solution. I think what we have to do is recognize that we were in, you know, if you go back 10 years, even five years, we were in a, a time of scarcity where every dollar that could house, house the homeless had to be debated in terms of what do you put it here? Or do you put it there? Do you put it in a shelter bed or do you kind of save up more and actually build a permanent unit? Because of some of the infusion of CARES Act dollars and, and American Rescue Plan dollars, et cetera, we're in a situation now where we have a little more breathing room, still not sufficient resources to house all those who are living on the streets. But what we need to think really carefully is what can we do to increase the stock of permanent housing and what can we do in the interim? Because in L.A. County, based on you know 2020 numbers, roughly you know 20,000 people were still living on the streets, 20,000 in cars and 20,000 in shelters at that time. Well, you know, there's a lot more that can be done for you know the 40,000 that were not already sheltered to connect them to systems of support. And some for so many of those people, they're going to need some housing, perhaps yeah. only in the short term. Um, and yet, right now, we're not connecting to them in the way that we ought to. And one aspect of that support um, that was in all of this was a funding for, for mental health. And we're trying to get more clarity on this, but the governor did mention uh, some that would be put towards services for mental health as part of this housing, and also uh, some money toward conservatorship. Uh, in L.A. County alone, roughly 30% of the unhoused suffer from some mental health issues as well as substance abuse. So, Professor, are we doing enough to aid this group of people? And if not, what more would you like to see? Well, from what I'm hearing from mental health professionals that are serving the homeless, we're not doing enough. I haven't had the opportunity to investigate all of the data. And then some of my colleagues who work um, in the Homelessness Policy Research Institute probably have much better, um, very precise numbers that they can share. But what we're seeing is that the homeless population on average has been aging. And those that, you know, once they get over 50 years old and now in in some places over half the population who people who are unhoused are over 50, they tend to have, you know, higher and higher rates of incidence of both physical health challenges and mental health challenges. And so we're seeing that we, we have to improve. So we actually saw this, I should say, during the pandemic with all the people that were housed that weren't housed before, that they actually needed more services than we anticipated. Um, the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that um, when we're doing outreach to avoid situations like what happened in Echo Park, um, when the police were called in to you know, move people from yeah. one place to another, you need mental health professionals on the front lines. And so if we're going to you know, reallocate our public safety infrastructure, we have to recognize that we actually have to fund the mental health component of that. How did you see that whole situation, Professor, at, at Echo Park Lake? Some some see it as a success in some ways, and some see it as a total failure. <laughs> well, I, I suspect that um, it, it's somewhere in between. Um, that it, what it, 
in many ways it violated some of the principles we know of best practices around outreach to mm-hmm. people who are experiencing homelessness. And so to that end, you know, it was very frustrating that those tactics weren't used first. That includes bring, putting out outreach workers and um, mental health professionals to connect to people to really explain what's happening and where they can go next. Um, you know, it is never proven to be uh, in the best interest of, of our communities to criminalize the homeless or to disperse them to a new spot. And I think what you know we need to do is to make sure that everyone that was in Echo Park actually is in an interim or permanent housing solution. And if they're not, we need to understand why so that we can avoid such a situation from happening again. I know that uh, I saw a lot of uh, chatter about how it became more of a police presence or use of police thing as opposed to getting people into some sort of shelter. And, And that troubled a lot of people. Yeah, I think even the protesters were perhaps focused on issues around the police rather than issues of what are the best practices to to house our unhoused neighbors. And and so to that end, I think um, some of the energy perhaps was lost. What we do have to recognize is that, and you see this with the actions there, the Judge Carter order about Skid Row, I think we all have to come to a common understanding that there's a moral imperative to house people who are living on the streets. And what that means is action in the short run, finding interim solutions, building more permanent housing and supporting them with the right services like mental health, as we're talking about here today. But it also means working upstream to make sure that we can actually have housing just built for you know, the majority of Angelinos. That's Gary Painter, professor and director of the Homelessness Policy Research Institute at USC. Professor, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, A. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. Even though many of us might feel like we've got more of a handle on the coronavirus pandemic now, L.A. is now in the yellow tier, after all. None of us can really forget this unbelievable year. I mean, it just happened to us, especially folks who have really been in the trenches. Lisa Fagundes is normally a librarian at the San Francisco Public Library. But starting last April, she and thousands of other city and state workers were redeployed to become contact tracers, calling people who may have been exposed to the virus. KQED health correspondent April Demboski met Lisa last spring and asked her to keep an audio diary. Now, listening through these entries, you can hear in real time how the pandemic just changes her, how it picks her up, twists her in all kinds of different directions and then drops her on the other side, just like it's done really to all of us. Here's her story. Hello, this is Lisa Fagundes. It's um, May 27th. I just finished my shift. It was very slow. I only had one contact. But personally, I I think all of us, but definitely me, are wondering what's going to happen after this last, it was just Memorial Day. I know a lot of people like went out and went to restaurants. And so it's like, okay, are a bunch of people going to start getting sick? Or did we somehow like defeat the virus, you know, with our shelter in place in California? So I guess we'll see. Hey, this is Lisa reporting for Monday, June 1st. Um, I had a pretty good ship tonight. Everybody was pretty compliant. Nobody was in a bad mood. Um, I did have a rough weekend. I had an uncle call out contact tracing on his social media and say that it was the government being invasive and you shouldn't answer contact tracers' questions and they're, it's evil. I keep laughing when this happens at people who think that, like, we're some sort of nefarious, like, government conspiracy when I'm like, we can't even get our database to, like, you know, not malfunction sometimes. So we're not nefarious. Um, We're just throwing this together on the fly. (laughs) 
This is Lisa Fagundes. It's um, Monday, June 8th. We had a little cluster of people who were all in their 20s and they got sick because somebody at a party had COVID. And I was like, here it is. Like, people are loosening up, you know, from a Memorial Day and whatnot. And it's like, okay, we're going to start getting these contacts that are kids at parties. Uh, this is Lisa Fagundes reporting June 29th. Today we had 16 pages of contacts. It's like almost 200. Hello, this is Lisa Fagundes. It is June 30th. We had a lot, like 20 pages of contacts. It's just getting crazy busy. Uh, this is Lisa Fagundes reporting on July 1st. Uh, it was a very hectic and stressful shift. I don't even know where to begin. It was just so busy and we were frantic and we're getting to that point now where, you know, a lot of the contacts are more annoyed that we're calling and they're not polite. Um, they're, they're getting frustrated. So I understand some of it. We have this system. It's a little bit clunky with like, they get multiple calls sometimes. And we're also starting to encounter more of the segment of the population that's, that doesn't trust this whole system that doesn't trust the department of public health in general. And I totally understand that for some communities, but it makes doing the work very difficult because they're a lot more curt and, and resistant or suspicious or scared and upset. So, yeah, it's just been it was just a lot of that tonight. It was exhausting. I feel totally fried and also completely wired. California is set to soon eclipse 400,000 coronavirus cases. California now leads the nation with more than half a million confirmed cases. It has the most coronavirus cases in the country. Governor Gavin Newsom announced a sweeping rollback to the state's reopening. Restaurants, wineries, tasting rooms, movie theaters, family entertainment, zoos and museums, card rooms, the shuttering of all bars. This is Lisa Fagundes. It is July 13th. Um, I can't, there's not much I can say. It was hectic. We had like 10 tracers tonight, so we were really busy because we're just trying to like tear down this massive surge. Um, we had a ton of cops that, uh, it's pretty, pretty messed up from what the contacts are saying. There was a cop that went to work and so he tested positive for COVID and then we had to call like all 60 employee, like coworkers of his, and we had another, uh, a lot of um, parties, a lot of parties. We had people coming from Sacramento to come to a party in San Francisco, and someone there was sick. Um, so now we have to call all those people. And a group of people, all parents, decided to, like, hire a couple babysitters and, like, t- have their kids, like, taken to, like, an impromptu, like, summer camp. And then one of the babysitters got covid so now all these kids, all these toddlers are contacts that we have to call their parents. But we're just seeing so much more of that, whereas before it was like literally all like pretty much the working poor. And now it's like a lot of younger people, a lot of English speakers now, a lot of people going to parties. And our contact tracing rates have slowed down because we have so many more contacts to put in that it was taking us longer to reach them all. And so then people are running around exposing other people more. So, yeah, it's it's nerve wracking. I definitely had a tracer on last Friday who, like, needed to, like, debrief and, like, process with me after the shift. And she was just, like, crying, you know. And she was like, it's just so hard. These conversations are so hard. And she's Latina. And she was talking, she talks to a lot of Latina families, Latinx families. And she was just really sad, you know. And I I pointed out to her, it's like, well, this is basically secondary trauma. Like, you know, you're telling somebody really bad news and you're hearing how hard it's going to be for them not to go to work. And it's just so unnecessary and so frustrating and so depressing and it's really hard to tell people terrible things. Uh, This is Lisa Fagundes. It's July 30th. It's actually July 31st. It's almost three in the morning. Um, I haven't done one of these in a while because it's gotten really crazy. Um, It's been really hectic. And the surge is just, it's just, I think it's just kind of getting to everybody. Um, And I'm doing this right now because I can't sleep. Um, I've been up just nonstop thinking. And I worked until about 11.30 p.m. tonight. My first meeting was at 9 in the morning. All of our departments are super backed up. 
So the food referral department got backed up, so now the contact tracers have to do that work. And then the test scheduling department got backed up, so the contact tracers are doing that work. And the tracers are starting to get, like, super frustrated and frantic and depressed, and it's just crazy. And then in the middle of a shift last week, my dog died. It was so, so sad, and... and I haven't even had a second to to grieve, really, because I'm so busy. And I just remember thinking, like, I was relieved because she is old and I'm so busy that I can't, I couldn't take care of her. I couldn't, because I was like, I can't take her out. I I can't leave the computer. I can't leave my computer. I can't go anywhere for, like, five to seven hours. I'm stuck. This is really f***ing hard, and everybody's just working so hard. And I'm super proud to be a part of it. And these are just such awesome people. And it's also so f***ing hard. So it's just been a really shitty week. Uh, it's just been a shitty week. And I'm just so scared that we're going to end up like, like New York City or something. And I don't know. I just don't know how that's going to be. I don't want to, I don't want to know. Uh, this is Lisa Fagundis. Um, I think it's August 6th. I don't know. Last week was like a dark cloud and this week it's like, okay, we can do this. Hello, it's Lisa Fagundis. Um, Oh, what day is it? It's a Saturday. Um, It's actually been a really chill week. The numbers are going down. Hopefully that stays. It's much better than July so far. July was just a nightmare of a month. Hello, it's uh, Lisa Fagundis. It is... I don't know. I think it's November 10th. We've been getting busier. It's um, November 18th. Everything is surging. It's um, November... 25th. So yeah, we're definitely in surge. Everything is insane. My brain feels like it's melting. Today is the first day that I didn't cry on shift in two weeks. Um, Every other day I have, but I'm hoping the numbers come down, but it doesn't look like anything is coming down. So we'll see. Tonight, the CDC says the spread of coronavirus is now so out of control. Americans should cancel their Thanksgiving plans. Please don't gather don't do indoor events. People will not get as good a care as they should be getting. Hospitals in Southern California are admitting infected patients faster than they can discharge them. Hospitals in Santa Clara County remain overwhelmed as COVID patients fill up intensive care units. Tonight, hospitals across the country are under siege. Hello, it's uh, Lisa Fagundis. Today is January 14th. So Christmas happened and the surge went insane. We just had, it was just bonkers town. Um, For Christmas, I was supposed to go to my cousins and we didn't do that. On Christmas Eve, I was supposed to go see my mom and we moved it to a different day. And it was my mom and my partner and me, my stepfather, my brother, my sister-in-law and their four-year-old, my niece. Um... And we were really good. Like, we all mostly sat outside, I'd say like 95% of the time. We were all definitely socially distanced um, and wearing masks, except for my niece. Um, took her mask off about halfway through. And then sure enough, like two days later, we find out that she had been exposed, like that her teacher tested positive for COVID. So I was, it was, holy shit. Like, I was so mad. <laughs> I was so mad and embarrassed. I was mad at myself for hanging out with my family, even though I knew it was a risk. I was embarrassed to be the person who's a contact tracer who then got exposed hanging out on the freaking holidays, which is the thing we knew we weren't going to supposed to do, you know? I didn't actually get contact traced. Like they didn't call, the school didn't call anybody. They just called my, I think they just called my brother. So I didn't actually get the experience of being called by a contact tracer. Um, which would have been pretty meta. Um, We all got tested, everybody was negative. It was a false alarm. She wasn't even near that teacher. But it really like, I don't know, it just really sunk in that like this is psychotic, you know, like this, this 
is just, it's just everywhere. I didn't know anybody with COVID for months. And then my niece almost got it. I have uh, my uncle, who the one who told me that contact tracing was bull and like masks are for sheep. He got it. He has it right now. Um, I had multiple friends get it. It's just suddenly everybody has it. It just got really, really serious. Um, really, really scary. And I did also find out on Christmas Day that my grandma got COVID. They told us um, about a week late. They were like, oh, yeah, your grandma has it. She's out of she's out of her isolation in a few days, um, and they, she's doing great. And this is my my one hundred and one year old grandmother who lives in a nursing home. So I'm like, hmm, I doubt she's doing great. And then sure enough, they call my father at five in the morning on Christmas Eve, and they say that she's doing really badly. Um, and then we hear nothing about it on Christmas Day, and then on Christmas the day after Christmas Day. They called him and said she had passed. They said she passed that morning, but I was like, she died on Christmas, and they just didn't want to tell us. My grandma was awesome. She was just an awesome lady. She was really funny, and she was just a badass lady, and she survived the Spanish flu, and then to die because she's in an old folks' home who, you know, that spreads like wildfire in there. And I, I just am so sad to think that she just drowned in her own lungs by herself, you know? Hello, this is Lisa Fagundis. Um, it is uh, 2.15, 2021. Um, there's a lot of, there's some rumors going around that the librarians might be deactivated finally and able to go back to work. Um, if if we don't have tons of cases, then we, they don't really need us. So this crazy time might be coming to an end for me soon. We're all kind of sad and we've, we've all been kind of feeling a little like pre-nostalgic about the end, the end is near kind of a thing. Hello, this is Lisa Fagundis. It's um, March 10th, I think. March 9th, 2021. Um, probably going to talk a long time because this might be my last recording. Um, so we're kind of just chilling a little bit. Uh, and they have pivoted into calling people about vaccinations. Um, I just got trained on that today, in fact. And then also, uh, as schools open up, we still have a ton of school contacts where like somebody at a school um, has COVID and then they have to pretty much shut down that whole pod of the school. So for the future, yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings. Like part of me wants to go back to the library and just be done with all this because it is just constant change and I'm tired. Like I'm tired of making difficult phone calls. I'm tired of helping people process making difficult phone calls. Like I'm tired of it, (laughs) you know, like I'm physically, mentally tired of it. Um, And another part of me... I'm going to miss the like the camaraderie of going through something like this. I'm going to miss the public health knowledge. Like <laughs> I see some of the library, you know, reference questions and it's all like ebooks and all this stuff and I'm like, "Oh, am I ready to go back and answer ebook questions instead of like vaccine questions, you know?" Like we're all like strangely sad and like mourning the end of this, you know, already, but also like, of course it's better that there's no, the pandemic might be going away, you know, so it's, it's complicated. It's, it's just been such a magical, like depressing and difficult and hard, but also um, empowering and strong and fascinating and touching time. And I feel very lucky for that. Wow, that was Lisa Fagundes, San Francisco librarian turned coronavirus contact tracer, sharing her audio diary of the last year. And this piece was produced by KQED health correspondent April Demboski. More Take Two coming up. Stay with us. Why do Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley love what they love? And who will prevail in a live quiz show? Are you ready to have a good time? 
Go Fact Yourself is back live at the Crawford. Join hosts J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong for a night of trivia and super secret surprise guests in this live taping of the Quiz Show podcast. It's March 23rd. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm e. Martinez. A group of female recruits completed Marine boot camp in San Diego this spring. It's the first time the Corps has trained women outside of Paris Island, South Carolina. Congress has mandated that the Marines fully integrate women into its boot camp. Still, it likely will be several more years before that happens. Steve Walsh reports for the American Homefront Project. Though isolated, the first group of female recruits to train in San Diego understood people were watching. Some were cheering them on, while others were more negative, like Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who called efforts to accommodate female troops a mockery of the U.S. military. Senior drill instructor Amber Starosik. They're not oblivious to what happens on social media. They know what's being said. I think it became more of a challenge to them to push them to be harder than it did set them back. The cameras often followed the women as they ran, swam, climbed obstacles, and crawled through the California dirt. The low point came midway through the 13 weeks, says drill instructor Stephanie Fall. When it came to initial drill, they were very, very nervous, and, and they messed up a lot, and we, we actually tied for last. Drill, synchronized marching. The women came in behind the five male platoons. The males are loud as they move their weapons in unison from shoulder to shoulder. Fall says women are meticulous, better attention to detail, but they weren't confident. Then came round two, final drill, says recruit Marianne Parra. I think we all woke up and said, why do we put ourselves down? Everyone else is breaking us down. We're supposed to be the ones building ourselves back up. They won, beating the five other platoons. And you could tell the moment we hit that parade deck, there was just passion. All of us remembered why we wanted to be a Marine. There were a lot of tears when they announced that platoon 3241 one drill. We were so happy. There were more tears to come. Unlike the Marines' traditional training site for women in flat, swampy Paris Island, South Carolina, West Coast Boot Camp culminates with scaling the Reaper, a summit that looms over training at Camp Pendleton. And you see the Reaper, even at the Chow Hall. And us girls, even I've overheard uh, male recruits, you see it and you just kind of tremble. But they reached the top, where they held the traditional ceremony. Each new Marine received an Eagle Globe and Anchor pin the symbol of the Marine Corps. Para, muddy and sleep-deprived, held it in her palm. It meant so more, so much more than I thought it was going to mean. Graduates of West Coast Boot Camp are dubbed Hollywood Marines. And these women are the first female Hollywood Marines in the 100-year history of San Diego Boot Camp. And it's true, looking down at this, I, I didn't think I was strong enough to be here. Every single day I was scared to be here. This shows to everyone that I actually can. Shows to myself that I'm bigger than I am. The Marines are the last service to fully integrate women into boot camp. They are under a congressional mandate to open boot camp in San Diego to women, but the deadline is 2028. For now, another cycle of women isn't scheduled for San Diego. Senior drill instructor Starosik doesn't want it to end. We're on a high right now. And I think the perfect thing for this high would be to continue pushing forward. They can do everything that is done out here. They prove that pretty thoroughly that, yes, they can, and actually they can do it really well. Though unless something changes, these 53 women are the first, and at least for a while, the last female Hollywood Marines. In San Diego, I'm Steve Walsh.
California's cap and trade program, well, it might not be capping emissions as it has been intended to do. We'll find out that story coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Arole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Stand up. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcasts, Sammy Martinez. California leads the nation in environmental and climate policies, and a big piece of that is the cap-and-trade program, which is designed to limit overall carbon emissions. Now, in short, the state trades corporations' carbon credits or allowances to release a certain amount of CO2. But what if the go-to strategy isn't working as well as it's intended? Well, with us to answer that is James Temple, Senior Editor for Climate and Energy at MIT Technology Review. He teamed up with ProPublica reporter Lisa Song to take a deeper look at uh, the one slice of the state's cap-and-trade laws. Now, first, James, explain how California's forest offset program fits into cap-and-trade. If a forest owner has more carbon than average for a particular forest type in a particular region, they can earn credits if they commit to not log at heavy levels or if they commit to log less than they had in the past, or if over time they manage the land in such a way that it will grow more trees and, and take up more carbon over time. Okay. And the company say there's a, there's a company that knows they're going to be polluting a little bit more than maybe they want to. Uh, how do they use and earn these carbon credits? And what can they legally do with them? If they purchase these carbon credits, you know, directly or through an intermediary from from the landowners or the project developers, then yeah, that that gives them the right to emit a little bit more than they would have, well, a ton more specifically than they otherwise would have been allowed to, you know, within the confines of the rules of the of the system and and the credits that they had purchased in other ways. Now, James, I'll quote your article here. You say that uh, ecology is messy, meaning uh, not all trees and forests have the same carbon sucking power. So why is that a problem in how the state calculates forest offset? A lot of the reporting ended up being based on a study that was done by a San Francisco nonprofit known as Carbon Plan, which evaluates the scientific integrity of carbon removal efforts like these sorts of programs. But At a basic level, the way that the program works is that it determines average carbon levels for certain forest types in in broad regions across the U.S. And, you know, landowners with more than that can earn credits for the difference if they commit to keep forests at those levels, at least on average over the next 100 years. Carbon Plan sort of pointed out two issues that stem from this. One is they believe and argue that the average is too coarse to actually represent typical forestry practices in many areas. So many projects end up earning more credits than they really should. And the second is that, at least in the aggregate, they had a sense that some project developers have come to recognize that you can increase or maximize the credits you can earn by looking around for projects that, for various reasons, Uh, are in areas where the carbon levels stand out significantly above those regional averages. And it's created this sort of adverse selection issue or or what we ended up referring to in in the piece as uh, cherry picking practice. So James, is it a question of the math being too fuzzy or the math being not specific enough for the regions? I mean, that gets into, you know, is there a better way to do this? Can you do this in a reliable way? Was this approach in general the right approach? but the averages just need to be more representative, done in narrower ways. And yeah, that's certainly the argument that, um, you know, some, even some proponents of the 
program and, and participants in the program made to us in the course of the reporting that you work with the data that you have and the data that the groups had that initially created the, the rules of this program was really broad. The tighter and tighter you go into local areas, the fewer forest plots you have. And so there can become some question about the reliability of that data. So to their mind, the way that you address this is by doing more forest surveys across more areas, get more forest plots. And then that number that they are basing all of this on becomes more more accurate, more reliable. More effective, or, right? More effective yeah. for what the state's planning on doing or wants to do. Right. Okay. You reported that California generated more than 130 million credits, which is worth about what $1.8 billion. So companies are making use of the program for sure. But the equation used by the state relies on the regional averages we've been talking about for how trees remove carbon. James, why is that an issue in terms of actual carbon pollution. The problem comes into the way that this ends up being balanced out on the other side. So if all that was happening was that some of these projects were exaggerating slightly intentionally or not intentionally the level of carbon removal that was happening or going to happen over time, that's one thing. But once you introduce this second element within the cap and trade program where the state's polluters can purchase these credits for the right to emit more than they would have otherwise, that becomes a problem. If the emissions are real on one side of that ledger, but the emissions reductions are overstated on the other side, then then you can end up in situations where you have a net increase in emissions overall within a system that was designed to be purely carbon neutral. And so in that sense, the offset program and the contention of the carbon plan study is that the overall effect of this is that it could be adding tens of millions of tons into the atmosphere instead of helping the state achieve some of its climate goals. Is there any tally for how much unaccounted carbon there is, or or maybe how much of the credits don't achieve any real climate benefit? At the high end, they found that as many as 39 million credits might be overstated through just this, this particular issue that this study highlighted and that's something on the order of, at least at current market rates, you're, you're getting into about half a billion dollars worth of carbon credits that are questionable. We're talking to James Temple, Senior Editor for Climate and Energy at MIT Technology Review about loopholes in carbon offset programs. Uh, James, how substantial is this loophole you found? I mean, is it just a, a small portion of the forest offset program or is the entire program maybe looking suspect right now from an environmental standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends a little bit about how you think about it. We're talking about something like a third of the credits that have been issued potentially at the high end being being suspect. Whether that's big or large, I guess, is somewhat of a, a subjective thing, but it, it seems to me to highlight some some real issues that at least bear looking at more closely and, and potentially trying to find ways to address. What have regulators, state regulators, said in response to assertions that the forest offset program is actually creating more problems and solutions? They certainly disagreed with the conclusions of Carbon Plan and some of the main points of the story. And and this is the Air Resources Board we're talking this is, about, right? This yeah. is the California Air Resources Board. But, you know, throughout the reporting, they took a pretty hard stance that, that they believe that they created the system in a scientifically accurate way and that it went through a, a lot of uh, steps and a lot of voices got to, to weigh in on on the credibility of the program and, and and that they remain satisfied that it is working the way that it had been designed to. Now, you and Lisa Song at ProPublic also reported about nonprofits collecting carbon credits and another type of loophole looking at uh, the Massachusetts Audubon Society as an example. Uh, James, tell us about Ma- Massachusetts Audubon's participation in the California cap and trade program. Why, why did the state's agreement uh, look good on paper, but maybe not in practice? Yeah. And so this is this separate, although interlinked issue that also came up in the analysis of the program by Carbon Plan, uh, which is that a lot of groups participating in the programs so far, a large share of them are conservation nonprofits. The concern is that, you know, these groups are already preserving their trees, their forests often. It's what they do. It's kind of part of their whole mission. So there's a concern here that they're getting carbon credits for practices that they were already conducting, which means that they might not be delivering additional climate benefits beyond what would have happened otherwise. And if not, then we come back to the problem I mentioned before, that while those projects aren't actually achieving additional climate benefits beyond what would have already happened, the companies buying those credits do get the right to emit more CO2 than they would have otherwise. So in some instances, as far as the atmosphere is concerned, net emissions could go up. 
So considering that, is it still worth it to have these kinds of programs, these kind of cap and trade programs, or is it just the best idea we have right now? I'm just a reporter who writes about these things and talks to smart people. I'm not a, I'm not a policy expert my, myself. I'm not a forestry expert, but you know, I think the response I, I hear a lot to, when that question comes up is that um, these systems are really difficult. There are some fundamental challenges that they present. There are probably better ways to do it than, than the ways we've come up with doing it so far that could minimize these problems more. That, of course, requires us to, you know, really listen to the, the scientific feedback that's coming out and, and try to identify problems and, and look for ways to address it. But I also think that there are different models for how you bring about additional preservation and, and carbon removal by treating forests in a managing forests in, in, in healthier ways. That could involve, you know, just directly funding these sorts of things through government programs or, you know, taxing carbon and using the dividends from carbon taxes to to pay for these sorts of preservation efforts and and so forth. Ways where you sort of get yourself out of this offset program, cap and trade program, where the ton for ton balancing out just becomes really, really challenging part of it. That's James Temple, Senior Editor for Climate and Energy at MIT Technology Review. And you can read his reporting with Lisa Song on California's Forest Offset Program at propublica.org and technologyreview.com. James, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. All right, finally, we want to hear from you. Earlier in the show, we talked about the 12 billion bucks that Governor Newsom says he'll put toward housing solutions for unhoused people in the state. So how would you like to see this money from the state be used in addressing homelessness here in L.A. and California? Give us a call. Let us know. Leave us a voicemail at 626-583-5281. That's 623-5281. Don't forget to leave us your name and tell us where you're from and how we can get a hold of you. 626-583-5281. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is next. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.